chapter 8, as we look at verses 1 through 4, Matthew chapter 8. I don't know about you, but I approach God with, in prayer with different problems, maybe sickness or whatever, and, and you know, it didn't seem like he answered the way I wanted him to or expected him to. I've seen some people and heard of some people that have done the same thing and they eventually seem to walk away from their faith. They had a hard time believing if they remained with their faith that God was really good. And it's not surprising because Satan's first move in the Garden of Eden was to cause Eve to what? Doubt God's goodness. He said, you surely shall not die for God knows that in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan convinced Eve to believe that God did not have her best at heart. He was holding out on her, in other words. Sometimes we wrestle with the same thoughts. And what does that cause us to do? That causes us to pray less. It causes us to change our attitude towards God, and it may even cause us to walk away from God. And if we do walk away from God, then we begin to live a more independent life, a life apart from God. We can work it out ourselves, we think, if it's going to be worked out. And it's all by sight and not by faith. And faith is very important in the Christian life. For without faith, it's impossible to please God. So we begin to doubt God's goodness when we do this, and we begin to wonder if answered prayer is only for those who have a great deal of faith or for someone more godly than us. But with our desperate needs, God wants us to come to Him. And we've got to understand a few things when we do this. We need to, as we approach God, we, uh, He wants us to bring our needs before Him. He tells us how to pray, and, and part of that prayer is bringing that need to a God who is sufficient to answer the need and take care of it. But at the same time, we need to be very careful. We need to be cautious in our prayer life not to try and manipulate God into doing something that he doesn't intend to do or the way that he desires to do it or it's not his time for doing it. We try to manipulate him into doing it our way. We bring our needs to to God and we're supposed to. We're to believe that he can take care of them. But when we bring them to him, We're also to leave them with him, knowing and believing that he has the wisdom to take care of them the way that he sees fit. And that way that he sees fit is the best way, and that's not always easy, is it? 
because we may be wanting to get out of a difficult situation or we may be wanting an answer to prayer with a, a, a problem child or a problem in the home or a problem at work or it may be a health situation and, and we just desperately want that delivered and want it delivered upon our time and the way we want it to be delivered. Today we need to or we want to look at a passage of scripture where man also had a desperate need. And he shows us a lot of things in this approach that he has to with him and Jesus that will help us hopefully with the problems that arise when we don't have prayers answered the way we should or how we should approach God and how we should look at things. This man had a desperate need and he approached Christ with this need. And from this story, we can learn some the important principles in how to approach God with our needs. This section of Matthew depicts the early phase of Jesus' ministry without concern for exact chronological order. We don't need to get hung up in the chronological order, the exactness of it. That's not Matthew's purpose. Matthew in chapter 8, 1 He's showing us a transition marker out from his sermon section. And this transitional marker is moving from the Sermon on the Mount and the teaching to the ministry. The ministry of Jesus. This, and so in Matthew 8, he has us coming from the Sermon on the Mount to the public ministry of Jesus. And here begins an acceleration of the series of events. I mean, they begin to happen quickly. And it's difficult to determine how many days are involved in these events. We just don't really know. Matthew's concern is not so much on the day-by-day -day chronological happenings, but he is more on what is going on and the reason for it and that is the public ministry begins to take place with Jesus. We'll see him as he begins to call his disciples and as he uh, you know not only that but we're also going to see him speak specifically of the reason he has come and and how he will accomplish it and he will de demonstrate to us how that you know, that he is the Son of God by performing the miracles that illustrate his authority. And this is very important, that illustrate his authority and power. So the healings of Matthew 8 through 9 are the first detailed Mathenian descriptions of Jesus' activity as far as performing things. He, yes, he has been teaching, but this is the ministry that puts it into action. And he uh, gives us these, uh, these miracles for a reason. And the reason is to show his power and authority that he is the Messiah. This is what the book of Matthew is about. To let us know that he is the son of David, the Messiah, Messiah the, the coming uh, son of God. And the reigning and ruling king. And so as Jesus concludes the uh, Sermon on the Mount, he speaks of two ways and two foundations. You remember that? And these uh, two ways, the open way and the 
narrow way and then the two foundations, a solid foundation and the sandy foundation. And the sermon closes by saying that the people were amazed at his teaching. And that's very important. He was teaching them, it says, as one having authority and not as the scribes. Now, did the scribes have authority? They had authority given to them within the temples and the synagogues to teach. So what was he talking about here? You see, one sign of authoritative teaching of Christ was the size of crowds that were gathering. Now, that doesn't mean that uh, necessarily that people are doing it right or doing it wrong today. But it did mean that at this time in Jesus' ministry, because we know that they began to depart later on when he quit doing the miracles, you know. And he started talking about true discipleship. They just left. But at this point in time, it shows us an important signpost of his position and who he was and the person that he was. When you look at the book of Matthew, the crowds become very important. In Matthew 4, at its conclusion, Jesus is beginning his Galilean ministry. And this is the last account of things before the Sermon on the Mount. And in verses 23 through 25 of Matthew chapter 4, Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching of their, in their synagogues, it says, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among people. And it says that the news spread about him throughout all Syria and they brought to him all those who were sick and he healed them and large crowds followed him from Galilee and Decapolis and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Here Matthew is telling us that the public ministry of Jesus with his deeds and his acts was beginning to draw a large crowd. And this is a culture where news spread by mouth from house to house and village to village. This is a culture that required verbal, oral transmission. A lot different from today, it seems like. The word is quickly spreading about Jesus. So the crowds were coming to Jesus when he went up on the mountain to teach. And the crowd has continued to increase. He started, the crowd started to come, they were there, so he began to teach them about the kingdom of God. And as they were listening here, we see that now the crowd has increased, they sat around, they listened to his teachings about the kingdom, and now he moves down off the mount, in chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, we have the crowd still following him. And whether this is the same day or not, we do not know. Matthew, as I said earlier, is not concerned with that. The fact is that, is that the presence of Jesus is sufficient to draw the crowd. And this is very important. They heard something. They said, you don't teach as our Scribes teach. 
You have a unique kind of authority. And like I said, it wasn't as if they were unfamiliar with different kinds of authority. This was unique. They had never heard one speak with this kind of authority. Now, what kind is this? This is the kind of authority that said, you remember Jesus saying when he was teaching? You have heard it said. You remember? What was he talking about? He was talking about Scripture because he would cite Scripture usually. Then he would say after that though, what? But I say unto you, unique. Jesus is clearly demonstrating his deity by speaking with the authority of God. He claims to be able to interpret Scripture and tell us the inner meaning of the Scripture. The scribes just could quote it and talk about the surface effects. Jesus went to the heart of it. One who heard himself. We see that Scripture tells us that the inner meaning of Scripture, the, the one who himself is the author of Scripture, says, you have heard it said, but I say this to you. No scribe, no Pharisee, no priest, no reader of the word in the temple could say that. So the crowds are drawn to that. The crowds were drawn to him for reasons that they probably couldn't articulate themselves. A lot of times we just, I don't know. I know what it says. I, I, I don't understand everything, but yes, it says that. They were drawn to him like iron pilings to a magnet because there is something about his presence, something about his teaching and his authority that was different than anything they had ever seen. Wow! What he teaches is unique. What he does is unique. Matthew has Jesus coming down from the mountain. And who does he meet to begin with? In chapter 8, verse 1, And when he came down from the mountains, great multitudes followed him. And behold, a leper came to him. And bowed down to him saying, Lord, if you are willing, and I want you to underline this because this is very important. If you are willing, we're going to look at how we should pray. How we should approach God. If you are willing, and then he says, heal me. Does he say that? No. Look in the verse. You can make me Clean. I think there's a difference between healing and cleaning. At least in his eyes, I could see this. And he stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing and be cleansed. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you tell no one, but go, show yourself to the priest. And present the offering that Moses commanded for a testimony to them. Look at that. 
for a testimony to them. Testimony of what? That he had been cleansed? Yes. But also, who cleansed him? Let's look at this. Leprosy, we know, very serious condition to have. Today, leprosy appears in two forms. One affects the nerves, while the other affects the skin. And it seems like they say that the latter seem to be the kind described in the Bible. A person can uh, harbor the disease, they say, for years before showing any signs. And we know that what happens is a deterioration of the body. Arms and feet and limbs and different things can fall off and eventually the person dies. In the Old Testament, certain guidelines were given for diagnosing leprosy. Leviticus chapter 13. When discovered, the afflicted person or persons were rigidly cut off from the community. Now you've got to understand that to get the picture here. I mean, here was a leper approaching Jesus. They were compelled to put on the signs of mourning as if they were dead. Their clothes were rent, their heads uncovered, their lips covered. And whenever they, they, uh, wherever they went, they were to shout out, Unclean! 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 In order to warn off others from being around them. Often a separate place was designed for them in the synagogue. If any infraction occurred from these regulations, 40 stripes would occur. In the Old Testament, the priests were not expected to provide healing for the leper. Whatever hope he had of returning to a normal life was wrapped in the divine son. His healing, his power. The Hebrew word for leprosy, and this is very important, comes from the root word meaning to strike. Now, what came from that? To strike. It signified that the leprosy, at least as far as they were concerned, was a stroke from God. Something loathsome. It was a curse. The leper was always considered ceremonially unclean, and, and the stigma and taboo attached to the disease su su suggested that it was an illustration of sin. So they were supposed to be people that had some sin that caused this. In this passage, we have a man with leprosy. We don't know how advanced his condition was. That's not the purpose. We do know that he was in desperation, though, and that there were restrictions and stigmas that he had, had to live with. With this man's desperate condition, we need to look at a couple of things we need to learn as we approach God with our desperate conditions. Or else we're going to be all messed up, as I said earlier. We're going to lose face because that's what Satan wants us to do. And we, he wants to cast doubt on God's goodness in our eyes. So the first thing that we need to look at is coming to God with a desperate need, requires recognizing Jesus as a person with the ultimate authority to help him. 
Let me share that again. Coming to God with a desperate need requires recognizing Jesus as a person with the ultimate, ultimate authority to help us, to help him. That's what he saw. This man had a desperate need. He was desperate for help. And in his desperate approach, he demonstrated humility. You see, Jesus, God wants us to approach him with our needs, realizing that, hey, God, you are the source. We need you. I need you. And I'm not going to try and manipulate you and Lord, you know what's best and help me with this situation to understand that. But I bring this to you. And if you be willing, I would love for you to heal me of this problem at work, of this problem at home, of this problem with whatever. We are told that he bows before Jesus as someone that who is superior in his culture. That's what it meant when he bowed. To someone superior. We're told that he implored. Which describes the tone of his request. He may not have known the theological concept of uh, sovereignty. But his ultimate of appeal there. Recognized that Jesus was a person with ultimate authority someone not like our scribes someone who has a unique authority the word lord is more than just a polite address it reflects that jesus has the capability to deal with the problem now i'm not saying that he recognized him as as the son of god i'm not saying that but he recognized him as someone that had the capability to deal with the problem. Though there is a reference to full deity later on with the disciples when their eyes are opened up, this is not the case here. But he did have a unique authority about him. So Jesus is, is addressed with respect because God is working through the man. And through Jesus. He approaches him as a godly person. Maybe a prophet. Whomever. The scene is important. Jesus had just finished the Sermon on the Mount. And was coming down from the mountain. And multitudes of people met Jesus at the foot of the mountain. Why not? He had developed quite a reputation at this time. This is where the leper approaches him. And look at what the leper says, as I've mentioned it previously. As he bows down before Jesus, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Here was a man who was feared by others, yet he comes to Jesus in the crowd and makes the request known to him. 
The request centers on Jesus, and this is very important, willingness to heal. Not on his capability. He wasn't questioning that. On his willingness to heal. The question in the Greek is not that he was not sure that he could heal. Just, are you willing to heal? So the reference for healing places a spiritual focus over the entire event. Now, what does this tell us? This man did not demand God to heal him. So first, when we come to the Lord and we demand in so-called faith for God to heal someone, and if that person isn't healed, then we just don't have enough faith then we are presuming on God. We're putting ourselves in a position of sovereignty and making God our servant, our bellhop, our genie, who will do whatever and should do whatever we wish and say. True, there are times within the Lord's sovereign purpose to heal, and He does do that. But we should never demand God to do something. We should just come with that appeal. Realizing that God knows what's best. And the leper is healed here. But it was by Jesus' choice and his initiative. Not ours or anyone else's. It's very important that we understand God's sovereignty. Because as you know, he does not always choose to do what we want him to do. Satan, as I mentioned earlier, would love for us to believe that God should do what we request whenever we request it. Give whatever we want whenever we want it. Do whatever we so choose to do and have him do it for us. Because when he doesn't answer our requests the way way that we desire for him to do, Satan knows that we will begin to lose faith if we stay there in that position. And it causes us to doubt God and His goodness. You know, we're just going to get to this first point this morning, but it's a great point in it. We'll move on. You know, my mom, in growing up, I wanted a motorcycle. I mean, I wanted a motorcycle. Didn't have to be a big Harley or Triumph. I just wanted a motorcycle. But she said, Mike, you'll never get a motorcycle. Now, they didn't give me a motorcycle because of a few reasons. Number one, they didn't have the money to buy that kind of stuff for me. I guess they could have made payments, but it just put a burden on them. But I think that the main reason for not buying me a motorcycle was because of the way I treated my bicycle. I bent it up on numerous wrecks. Always trying to go faster than the other one. Always being the daredevil. Playing chicken. 
with others. And that scared, I think, my mom. Not so much my dad. My dad says he has to learn the hard knocks. But mom, she didn't want me. So she just didn't trust me with a motorcycle. And I guess that's good because my neighbor got a motorcycle for a short while. And I drove it a few times. And I guess she was right. <laughs> Whatever reasons or sovereign parental purposes were, they declined me the motorcycle. And whether it was because of safety purposes and not because that they couldn't afford it or just because they didn't want to buy it for me or whatever, it was because of the sovereign choice of the parent. They saw things that I didn't see. God can afford to give us anything because of his sovereignty, much more so than a parent, because he has ultimate sovereignty. And so the leopard was correct in saying that Jesus could heal him if he chose to. It is not correct to say that Jesus must heal us because he has the power to. What is correct to say is Jesus can heal us if our healing is a part of his sovereign purpose. You remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? You remember them being cast into the fiery furnace. And it said, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of the blazing fire. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods. This is a proper understanding of, of God's sovereignty in relation to his power to deliver us from a trial by fire or a trial by disease or a trial by difficulty or whatever it might be. This is understanding that a believer needs to have when he or she comes to a sovereign God. We need to ask ourselves if we doubt God's goodness. And if we do, we probably are having a hard time with his sovereignty. We must fully be prepared to accept what God wants. And that's the first thing that we need to do. You see, if we worry, we doubt God's goodness. And I've done plenty of that. The leper was willing to accept whatever Jesus delivered. And we're going to close at that. Are we willing to approach God this way? To accept whatever God wants. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't pray for deliverance. Doesn't mean that at all. But what it does mean is that we should approach God and not lose faith just because God doesn't answer our prayers a certain way. It should strengthen us in the sense of knowing that God is at work. He may answer it later on. But if he doesn't answer it exactly the way I want him to, and this is what requires faith. I'm going to trust him. And that's hard to do at times. I'm going to trust him. And I'm going to keep on being faithful. And realize that he knows a lot more than I do. And he has a lot better things for me than I have.
Let's bow our heads in prayer.